Good morning. Today is the first Sunday in February, and for us in this class, the beginning of a new study, the New Testament book of Colossians. You may already have your Bible open to Colossians. We will begin our preliminaries and our introduction to the Colossian letter in just a moment after prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all the blessings we have in Christ, thankful for this opportunity and ready to study thy word for our present and eternal good. Help us to concentrate and seriously apply what we learn in our hearts and our lives every day to thy glory. In Christ's name, amen. When we begin a new course of study, it gives me an opportunity to tweak what we've been doing and try to take us to some incremental improvement of how we do this. And so in this course of study in Colossians over the next several weeks, I'm going to do two things just a little different. One, I'm going to use less PowerPoint. When I get too many slides set up and I get involved in teaching and talking to you about the text and I don't keep up with the slides, it can become a distraction. So I have reviewed what I do about that and decided I'm going to use less PowerPoint slides. I'll still use them, but less. Certainly when I get to the final takeaways, we'll have a list of our practical lessons and there will be a map in this morning's PowerPoint set, but generally I'm using less PowerPoint in this class. Number two, as I mentioned Wednesday night and may have mentioned last Sunday or Sunday before that, I'm providing what I call study pages. You can pick these up in printed form here at the building I recommend a few days before each class, or you can visit our website, lhmacallan.org, and at the top menu, you'll find Colossians, and when you click on that, it'll take you to a page that contains, in PDF form, all of the study pages over the next two months in Colossians. The idea is to read the passage first, and then read that study page to help you understand the main idea and then come to class for our study. Study pages are designed to be read before you come to class. Comments, as always before, are welcomed at various points in the lecture. Just keep those on the topic or on the passage that we're working with. So let's get started now in Colossians with what I'm going to call our introductory study. And that is basic facts about the Colossian letter that will help us as we begin the study. I know that we are anxious to get into the text and discover the meaning and talk about verses and word definitions and take all that to good applications. But all of that must be based on our knowledge of the facts concerning this book. So our beginning place will be the location of Colossae and other basic facts about the epistle, the writer, and the recipients. 
Colossae was a city in the region of Asia Minor. And if you were to visit that physical location today, you would be in modern-day Turkey. There was a main road leading from Ephesus over toward the east, the Euphrates Valley, and Colossae was on that route. So to locate Colossae on a map may be helpful. To orient yourself, Jerusalem is down at this corner, Rome is up at this corner. This is that area we're talking about, identified as Asia Minor. Most of this is modern-day Turkey. And you may remember there were churches in this area. In fact, the book of Revelation mentions seven churches in Asia. And one of those was Ephesus, we recall, and there was another Colossae. And that's where this epistle was sent to the local church in Colossae. Other cities in the area were Laodicea, you remember that from Revelation, and Hierapolis. Colossae was sort of like a health resort, well known for the abundant supply of what was considered medicinal waters and natural baths very similar to places in our country today like Hot Springs, Arkansas. Concerning the church at Colossae, we do not have specific background information like we do for other local churches. Here's what I mean. When you study Philippians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, and the letter to the Corinthians, you can refer back into the book of Acts and you can discover the history of when those churches were established. And sometimes you have pretty good detailed information about the beginning of those churches. We do not have that kind of specific information to inform us of how this local church in Colossae came into existence. There was extensive preaching in this region that was on the map, Asia Minor, and you can follow a trail of indirect evidence in Acts chapter 16, 18, 19, and 20. And within that framework of what Luke tells us in Acts, a statement is made in Acts 19, 8 through 10, where it says, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks we might well conclude that Colossae was a part of what was expressed there. From those passages, we conclude the gospel was taken into this region, people obeyed the gospel, and a local church was formed. In the study of Colossians, there is something you may hear about called the Philemon Connection. I want to talk to you about that for a moment. The Philemon Connection. Listen, please, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, 
our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, there's one name there you recognize, and you recognize that name from the Philemon epistle. And that, of course, is Onesimus. Onesimus was the slave Paul found who was returned to Philemon. And that story is told in the little New Testament book of Philemon. All evidence considered, it seems to me, Philemon and Onesimus may well have been members of the church in Colossae. And there is some probability that the church met in the home of Philemon. Some of what I've said there is speculation, but it's based on some evidence. The writer of Colossians was the Apostle Paul. He was accompanied by Timothy, and of course he wrote this letter to the church at Colossae. So that's basic background information about the people and their location, the geography, and the little bit that we might know about the people who were there could have included Onesimus and Philemon. And the fact that we do not have detailed background information back in the book of Acts. Anything else you'd like to bring up? Basic introductory information about Colossians. In introducing Colossians, there's something to be reckoned with right up front. Because we're going to encounter this all through the letter. There was a problem in Colossae. When I say that, I do not mean that every member of the church at Colossae was caught up in some sort of false doctrine. But there was a threat in that area. There was false doctrine being spread in that area. And Paul needed to deal with that proactively with members of the church at Colossae. I want you to look with me at chapter 2 and verse 8 where this is highlighted. Chapter 2 and verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We'll talk about that verse in more detail in a week or two when we get there. What I want us to see now is in our background study, there was a system of religious error that was insidious and pervasive in Colossae. It was a threat to Christians in that area. Proactively, Paul's attitude is, I need to address this. And he was inspired by the Spirit to do so. Now, when I say a system of religious error, what I mean is something that wasn't in keeping with the truth of the gospel of Christ. Christians base their lives, their practice, their collective work, their worship. Christians base everything on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that we have in the New Testament. So if something is going on that would undermine that or pull us away from that or deceive us or tempt us, it needs to be addressed. And that's what Paul is doing here. Something that wasn't in keeping with the truth of the gospel of Christ, 
was being spread in Asia Minor, in the Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea area in particular. It was a religious system that came from men, not God. The gospel of Christ comes from God. And we give to God our allegiance by being obedient to the gospel of Christ. But we know that in the world there are many religious systems created by men, not God. Many people in Colossae were enamored, charmed by this powerful but wrong system of religion. And especially you see this in Colossians chapter 2. Paul is responding to this. The evidence seems too strong that the young Christians were in danger of being imposed upon by brilliant, delusive preaching. There was a danger there. And Paul wanted to address that there was something new going around that would undermine their faith. And Paul is not suggesting in the letter that they had all, that they had all bowed down to this. But he wants them to be prepared and informed and motivated and warned about this new religious system. Now, let's go deeper. I want to talk to you about how this religious error can be described. And I take this from what the Colossian letter says. It was a blend or mixture of religion and philosophy and distortions. This religious system being spread in Colossae, sometimes called the Colossian heresy, was a blend or mixture of religion and philosophy and distortions. At the time Paul wrote this letter, this system was gaining popularity in that area of Colossae. So it was necessary for Paul to hit this head on and warn the Christians about it and give them instruction that would reduce their vulnerability about it. Now, when you talk about this, what we often want to do is give it a name. Was it Judaism? Was it Gnosticism? Was it sheer paganism? And who were the leaders? Well, at the time Paul wrote the Colossian letter, this religious system from men, this erroneous false doctrine, was just being developed. So you might not be able to put a label to it or identify a man with it. This religious system did not really have a formal name. It was not institutionalized or organized. It was powerful and popular and threatening to the faith of Christians, but it was informal. It was a mixture of things, not like a religious organization. It was in the early stages of development, trending, popular, widespread. Here's the best way I could describe it, and I base what I'm going to say on reading the Colossian letter. If today I wanted to assemble a new religion, suppose I had the resources and the influence and the access to people to build a new religion. And so I take something from the Bible and I take something about Christ, not everything, just some of the teaching that's in this book. And then I mix into it some Islam. 
And then I add a little Judaism. And then I put in a little tone of New Age religion. And I just look around at various philosophies and ideas that seem to be swirling around society. And I pick a little bit of all that and I just put it all together. And then I send it off to my marketing department and they further refine it and put it together. And it's spread as a new religion. And I sell this religion to the public and people begin to get on board and I ask for donations. But I don't yet have it all organized. I'm in the process of putting this all together. It's a false religion. It is not according to Scripture. It doesn't give Christ the place the apostles gave him. That's what was happening in Colossae. That's what I think was happening in Colossae. Probably with roots in philosophy, uh, in Gnosticism, there was a kind of religious thinking taking hold in Colossae that was not maybe full-fledged Gnosticism that emerged later. Reference was made to Christ in this heresy, but he was not exalted to his rightful place of preeminence. This is what is sometimes called the Colossian heresy. Now, here's what I think we need to discover as we go through Colossians. New Testament Christianity is not available for marriage. Here's what I mean. You can't take what the New Testament teaches and marry that to some other religion or philosophy and still have genuine New Testament Christianity. The gospel of Christ wasn't given to just mix in with something else that comes along. And this is what I mean when I said New Testament Christianity is not available for marriage. And something else we're going to come to in Colossians in a very dominant way in order to be saved. Christ must be given his place of preeminence. You can't demote him and still have genuine Christianity. If we accept any idea, any philosophy or system of thought that demotes Christ, that reduces the value of his sacrifice, that argues against what the Bible says about who he was and what he did, we surrender our own personal salvation. You can't be saved and go to heaven demoting Jesus Christ or reducing your confidence in him. Can't do that. Let me show you. In chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption in Christ. We cannot reduce our allegiance to Him because of some new thing we've heard that attracted us. In chapter 2, again at verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Everything that I believe and do and say must be according to Christ. 
who died for me. I can't take the edge off of any of that. See, these are truths that emerge clearly in the Colossian letter that must be embraced without compromise. Without compromise. You cannot take these truths and dilute them to accommodate anybody or anything. You cannot take what the New Testament says and mix in some of this and some of that and just make it a big mixture of something. I think that's what was happening in Colossae. And Paul is saying to them in the letter, you can't demote Christ. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. That's chapter 2, verse 10. All right. Do you see the importance of this? We do not have today exactly the same kind of religious philosophy that was circulating in Colossae, but we have a lot of people today and a lot of religious systems today that want to talk a little about Christ in the Bible and quote a few passages, but then mix in a whole bunch of stuff that men came up with. We've got to reject that. We We can't buy into that at all. Questions or comments? Chapter 1, 1 and 2. I'll have more to say about in more detail Wednesday night, but let's start here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, this is in the usual format that we observe in the study of epistles from that era and from the New Testament. And that's the first thing you see here. Look at it this way, and you'll see this many times in the New Testament. The writer is identified. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The writer's credibility is affirmed. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The writer has an associate with him when he's writing. And he names that associate Timothy, our brother. So this is not information that lends itself to very lengthy commentary, though we will give some commentary to it Wednesday night. But it's necessary introductory information. The writer, his credibility, and who's with him at the time. Now, look at the rest of it, and you have the recipients. And with the recipients, there is also a pattern that was typical in letters written in that culture. The recipients are addressed to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. The term saints means they were Christians, sanctified by the blood of Christ. More about that Wednesday night. Faithful brethren indicates their loyalty. This is why I said to you a moment ago, we are not to assume that all the members of the church in Colossae had embraced this heresy. Paul is writing proactively to protect them and prepare them for this heresy. 
But he says here they were faithful brethren. That's an indication of their loyalty and their good association with others who shared that loyalty. In Christ is one of the most important prepositional phrases of the entire New Testament. We'll talk about it Wednesday night. In Christ, one of the most important prepositional phrases in the New Testament. It shows their relationship to God through or in Jesus Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, according to Colossians 2 and verse 12. So to these brethren, Paul issues warm wishes, but he puts it in spiritual terms when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I have some additional introductory information, but I may save some of that for Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we will go through the first two verses and talk about some of the things only mentioned briefly tonight, such as today, such as that prepositional phrase in Christ. I have takeaways already, and I'll use PowerPoint for those to help you remember them. Questions or comments? Colossians, this is introductory information. Help us navigate the letter. <clears throat> Takeaways. The entire epistle speaks to us today that we must resist compromise. Opportunities to compromise what you believe you may encounter almost every day. Opportunities to compromise what you believe and what you practice, where you stand, you may be subjected to temptation and compromises. Opportunities to fall away from the truth almost every day. We can't take what we have read and believed in the New Testament and mold and fashion it to plug into some sort of modern system. Or to make it more popular. Or to make it more marketable to the public. That's compromise. And it shows an absence of confidence in what God has given to us through the apostles. All through Colossians, in every chapter... We're going to be reminded and we're going to be admonished against the sin of compromise. It's a very subtle thing. I do not imagine someone waking up on a Wednesday morning and saying just quickly, well, I'm going to take what I believe in the New Testament and I'm just going to plug into it all kinds of things I'm hearing on the media. Or I'm going to take what the New Testament says and all of these big TV evangelists that have their crusades and their own TV and they write books. I'm just going to take some of what they say and just, just kind of plug it in there to the New Testament. I don't imagine that people just get up one day and suddenly decide to compromise. It is a very slow, gradual process of pressure and temptation and it has this factor in it, inattention to feeding your faith. Didn't Bubba talk to us about that last weekend? Feeding your faith. If you're inattentive in feeding your faith, 
you open yourself up to the kind of compromises Paul warned the Colossian Christians about. So one takeaway that we're going to encounter on every page, every chapter in Colossians is that we must resist compromise. Now, <clears throat> here's one way <clears throat> we do that. Here's one way we resist compromise. Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did and what he taught must be kept front and center. Must be given preeminence. That's one way you resist compromise. See, it is critical for us to understand that Christ is not just another Bible personality, another character you read about in the Bible. He is not just a part of the story. He is the story. It is the gospel of Christ. Anything I encounter in this world that diminishes the truth about Christ, that dethrones him or dismisses his role as king, I need to reject it and speak against it. And I need to feed my faith constantly so that I'm able to do that and motivated to do that. There's a well-known song. He is my everything. Have you heard that song? He is my everything. He is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. He gave his life for me, made everything new. He is my everything. Now, how about you? So if Christ is everything, if he's front and center in my faith, if I'm part of a house that's been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, I can't compromise any of that. So resisting compromise has this follow-up. Keep Jesus Christ front and center in all that you believe and teach and practice. Colossians enriches our conviction <clears throat> that Christ must be front and center in our faith and in our practice. Number three, very important, number three. <clears throat> Sound doctrine must be held to firmly along with personal practice. Can't get those separated and get a hold of one and leave the other off while holding firmly to sound doctrine is absolutely critical. We cannot let personal practice be minimized. See, it is one thing to refute error and do it effectively. It's one thing to know how to answer arguments against the faith and answer those arguments as you have opportunity. It's one thing to know Bible so well that you can articulate biblical truth against heresy. The truth, however, was not just given 
to be defended and spoken, but to be lived every day of the week in all your relationships and interactions with people. When we get into the latter chapters of Colossians, and I'll stress this here in a moment, when we get into the latter chapters of Colossians, the practice of the truth about Christ will have our attention. In chapters 1 and 2, where our attention is focused is who Christ is. The exalted position of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, what he did to take the law out of the way and to die for the forgiveness of our sins. That has our attention in chapters 1 and 2. Then we get to chapters 3 and 4, and the question is, what does this all mean to me about how I'm going to live? What am I going to do in my family, in my marriage, raising my children? How am I going to interact with those that I work with and my neighbors? How am I going to be patient with my brethren? How am I going to deal with attitudes that may intrude into my mind that could take me away from the Lord? What am I going to do about materialism? Denominationalism. Humanism. So everything about the truth concerning Christ in Colossians 1 and 2 comes down to how I'm going to live in chapters 3 and 4. That's very important. When we get into the latter chapters of Colossians, that's what it's going to be about. We refer to some of the epistles written by Paul in the New Testament as prison epistles, and Colossians is one of them. Very likely he was under house arrest and could have visitors, but he was in prison. He mentions that also in his letter to the Philippians. Part of the time Paul was in a dungeon, chained. Part of the time he was simply under house arrest and could not go anywhere. Here's what needs to occur to us when we read these epistles, like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. What kind of letter would you write? If you were in prison, be good to stop, think that through. What kind of letter would you write if you were in prison? The guard comes in and he says, now, we don't have phones. It's the first century. Don't have a cell phone for you. Can't make a call. But here's some parchment and a stylus. And so you can write one letter. I'll give you a couple of minutes. You can write one letter. Just uh, what are you going to write? What are you going to put in that? I'll tell you what I'm going to say. Dear brother lawyer, come get me out of here. Or maybe, maybe how about a cake and something inside it that would cut, uh, you know. What, what are you going to write if you're in prison and you're writing a letter? Paul gives no evidence of wanting to escape or walk away. His heart's concern is to inform and encourage his brethren, even those who had not seen him face to face. Now that's an attitude of a true servant, and it's an attitude that we 
ought to imitate. We're going to think about that as we go through the Colossian letter. Paul's concern is not get me out of here. His concern is let me get to you and let me write to you about this danger that is a threat to your faith. There is a word I ran into several years ago, and I don't get to use it very often, so I'm going to take this opportunity to use it. You've all heard of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the teaching that you go by. And as you go by that teaching and you insist that there will be nothing else to enter into my practice but this teaching, you're orthodox. You're sticking to the teaching that you were initially given. Orthopraxy would be what? Practicing the teaching. So when we come to Colossians 3, I'm going to read a little bit of that. I've just got about three or four minutes to give you an idea. When you come to Colossians 3 and 4, it's going to be orthopraxy. You could call chapters 1 and 2 orthodoxy. Here's the teaching about who Jesus is and what he did. You have to hold to it. But now, what am I going to do about my life? If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And verse 9 says, do not lie. Now, what's the basis of the moral instruction in Colossians 3? What's the basis of the orthopraxy, what you're going to practice and live by? It's what is taught through the apostles from God about who Jesus is and what he did. That's what the Colossian letter is going to be about. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul teaches the truth about who Jesus is and what he did. In chapters 3 and 4, he says, here's what it's all about. It's about how we live, how we handle anger, how we confront sexual temptation and say no to it. Do not lie. Have this attitude. Do not have this attitude. It's all about how you live, but it has a basis. Who Jesus Christ is and what he did. We'll talk more about the opening verses in Colossians chapter 1 when you come back for more study Wednesday night. Thank you.